0: Welcome to episode 13 of the Inside Elections podcast, where we analyze elections in a nonpartisan, data-driven and accessible way. In this episode, we'll dive into the special election to replace George Santos in New York's third district. We'll talk about the upcoming Iowa caucuses with a reporter on the ground in the Hawkeye State. And we'll hear what movie outperformed Nathan's admittedly low expectations. Buckle up.
1: Hello, I'm Nathan Gonzalez, editor of Inside Elections, and I'm looking forward to spending a few days at the beginning of March in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. Uh, That's in the 23rd district. Uh, It is on the Atlantic coast side of the state. It's a district represented by Democrat Jared Moskowitz. It goes north up to Boca, I think north north of Boca. But anyway, that is the Public Affairs Council. Uh, National PAC conference. It's fun because you get to I get to mingle with some current Inside Elections subscribers and get to know some people who should be subscribing. Uh, <laughs> Jacob.
0: <laughs> and I'm Jacob Rubashkin. I'm the deputy editor of Inside Elections, and I am looking forward to spending some time this year in Virginia's sixth congressional district, represented by. Republican Ben Klein. It is home to my favorite national park, Shenandoah National Park. Uh, I don't know when I'm going to get out there, but I certainly plan to at some or many points uh, across Wait, the year. Deputy
1: editor of Inside did we talk about this?
0: Break, breaking <laughs> news. <laughs> Breaking news! Bring the Chiron in. I don't know if we have talked about it yet, but Nathan, I'm 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 moving up in the world. No, it, um, no, uh,
1: I'm I'm excited, Jacob, uh, that you are getting this promotion. Uh, you've you are already an experienced veteran. You've been covering these races for years now, and I'm excited for you to have a, a even more prominent role uh, at Inside Elections. And because uh, you've earned it, and uh, and now maybe now though you get more responsibility. You, it all just can't fall. If we screw <laughs> up, it's not just me you <laughs> but no yeah, congrats yeah, my, i'm i'm excited
0: thank you no i am I'm, I'm i'm very excited to you know it's been hard to believe it's been almost 4 years now uh but it has been and and uh as we head into this very exciting presidential cycle um i'm i'm really you know looking forward to the work ahead uh and and new and interesting things uh that we're going to get well, up to
1: you've already learned that no cycle is easy. <laughs> there is always something throwing <laughs> throwing a, a curveball at us.
0: Absolutely, though I think I did I did catch a break by twenty twenty being my first cycle in the in the fray because the things that happened then, uh, fingers crossed, are not going to happen again. Um, we'll see what twenty twenty four has in store, but I feel like there was a bit of a, a baptism by fire there uh, that yeah, first year. Exactly. So let's get started. Uh, we're going to talk, like I said, about New York 3, and we're going to talk about the Iowa caucuses with Washington Post reporter Marianne Levine, our special guest on the podcast today. But before we get into that, we're going to talk about a few news items in congressional uh, news over the last couple weeks. Uh, I'll kick us off in Colorado. Congresswoman Lauren Boebert, the controversial congresswoman from Colorado's third district, uh, is attempting to boost her chances of returning to Washington next year year. Uh, she had the narrowest victory of any member of Congress in 2022, just a couple hundred votes, and currently represents the state's third district, which is on the western side of Colorado. Uh, but she announced that she's actually going to be seeking re-election in the fourth district, which is On the other side of the state, it's an open seat where Republican Ken Buck is retiring. Uh, The fourth is significantly more Republican leaning than the third district, which we had rated as a tilt Republican compared to the fourth's solid Republican. Uh, The only problem is that uh, the fourth is hundreds of miles away from Boebert's home in Rifle, Colorado, and there are already several credible Republican contenders running for the nomination there. Uh, she did secure a notable endorsement from House Speaker Mike Johnson, uh, but whether that translates into support on the ground remains to be
1: seen. Yeah. And that and that Johnson endorsement you know, could help her raise money, but Republicans in the district are not backing down, right? We're scheduled to meet with one of the candidates, State Senator Ted Harvey, who's coming to Washington next week. Uh, there are other candidates in the race. And, and so it'll be, this is going to be a really fascinating race to whether sort of a Republican with a national profile can just kind of hop, get up, leave and run in another district, how well that plays. We're going to see this in in real time.
0: Yeah, it'll be an interesting local versus national, uh, as well as, you know, how much support the national party is really going to be interested in uh, putting behind her when they have such pressing needs elsewhere. Right.
1: And in a primary, she's going to be, I think, largely on her own beyond this Johnson, this Johnson endorsement. Um, yeah. In other Republican news, uh, Missouri Republican Blaine Meyer announced he will not seek reelection to his third district seat, uh, which covers a chunk of territory between St. Louis and Kansas City. Uh, it's a solid Republican seat uh, with a Republican baseline of 61%. So the most important race is the August 6th Republican primary. Uh, but this type of announcement, Jacob, makes me feel old. Because I remember interviewing candidate Blaine Lueckemeyer uh, back in two thousand and eight, and now he's already leaving. <laughs> he's already served a whole a whole tenure in Congress, and now he's out. and And I went back and looked at my my notes from that candidate interview in two thousand eight, and we there was some uh, uh, campaign literature with his campaign team, and it included direct mail consultant Jeff Rowe, uh, who <laughs> back then was largely a, a Missouri based. Republican uh, Republican consultant, and now you know he he was maybe best known for helping uh, Republican Glenn Youngkin win the Virginia governor's race, ran Ted Cruz's presidential race before that, and then uh, was at the top of the Never Back Down Desantis super PAC until recently. Uh, that didn't end uh, quite as well as what I think the Desantis folks uh, had hoped. But it just uh, I don't I'm having a little moment here where I, I feel old, even though this is current current news with Luke Meyer leaving.
0: Yeah, it's a small world that we we live in and cover. Uh, It's a lot of the same characters you find. Uh, I know you you wrote that story about the Iowa caucuses back in 2004 and the Dick Gephardt campaign and all of the uh, folks who are on the Dick Gephardt campaign or were on the Gephardt campaign are still at the highest levels of democratic uh, political operations even to this day. Um, though I, I will say, you know, we pride ourselves on our specificity here, but uh, a chunk of territory between St. Louis and Kansas City uh, seems to me to indicate the entire state of Missouri. Um, so uh, central,
1: take, it's, it's, it's central, like really between those. But yes, you're right. E- it's, it's, it's equidistant, <laughs> um,
0: perhaps, uh, but. Uh, no, it's 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 interesting that Lutkemeyer is is retiring. I think he is not going to be the last member of Congress to come out with a decision that they made over the holidays. Uh, for him, especially, you know, he was in line to be the chairman or ranking member, of the top Republican on the Financial Services Committee, after Patrick McHenry, another long-serving Republican representative, announced his surprise retirement. Uh, late last year. And so the fact that you've got uh, long serving. Uh, Republican members who have a straight shot to powerful positions voluntarily leaving Congress uh, at a time when Republicans could very well maintain the majority next year. It's not as if they're prepping for a wave year uh, as in some past cycles. I think to me really underscores just how toxic Washington has become, just how undesirable it has become to be a member of Congress, to have to put yourself through that uh, day in and day out. So I expect we will see uh, many more uh, more senior members of both parties ultimately head for the exits before the cycle is through. Well,
1: speaking of the temperature on Capitol Hill, uh, Jacob, what uh, what's the next headline? So uh,
0: former Capitol Police Officer Harry Dunn, who rose to national prominence when he testified in quite vivid terms about the assault on the Capitol uh, in front of the January 6th committee last year, um, and who has become a hero really to a lot of uh, opponents of President Trump, has announced that he's running for Maryland's third congressional district. That's an open, solid Democratic seat being vacated by longtime Congressman John Sarbanes. Uh, While Dunn does have a national profile that should help him fundraise. We saw this with Uh, Eugene Vindman, another uh, central figure in a Trump impeachment proceeding who raised, I I think, $800,000 in his first 24 hours as a candidate for Congress in Virginia. Uh, So Dunn should be able to raise uh, good money. Uh, but he is going to face several much more experienced and seasoned local politicians in the Annapolis based district. And, and though he did grow up in Maryland and Prince George's County, uh, he doesn't really have close ties to the third district specifically, which is uh, a bit of a different area. Uh, even though Maryland, of course, a, a very small state. So we'll see uh, the kind of campaign that he can put together. I expect him to do well in fundraising, but uh, there are a, about a half dozen local elected officials already in that contest uh, who who are uh, very credible
1: candidates as well. Well, with your Maryland roots and sources, uh Folks can guarantee that this primary will get a disproportionate amount of attention uh, in, the, in the newsletter and in and, in uh, and, uh, and on this podcast. So we'll we'll be watching that. Um, the final thing that that I uh, that I was going to point out is at the end of the year uh, in December, uh, the House Ethics Committee announced that it is investigating a Democratic Congresswoman Sheila Sherfalis McCormick of Florida over complaints that she may have violated campaign finance laws. Now that's notable uh, because. Jacob, you were the first person uh, to raise these questions and do the initial work and write a, a great investigative piece for Inside Elections uh, way back in June of 2022. I, almost, I had to look at that so many times. I'm like, was that really not June of, of 2023, June of 2022? Uh, and so you know there there aren't a lot of details about what the house ethics committee is really doing not a lot of details on the timeline that is not the strength of the house ethics committee but i i'm going to go out on a very short limb that uh the work that readers read in inside elections the work that you did that folks saw is is a part of this investigation
0: yeah we may never know uh which is a little unfortunate just because of the secrecy surrounding ethics committee proceedings. But based on the items that the committee said that they were investigating, uh, her financial disclosures, the spending that she did um, during her special and regular primary elections, and then the uh, relationship between her office and the advertisements that she ran and the people who helped her run those advertisements uh, were all covered extensively in my story. Uh, you know, I, I broke the, the news about the outside campaign consultant that she had uh, coordinate those ad buys. Um, that that are are alluded to in the ethics committee statement. So we'll see where it goes. Uh, she is a relatively new congresswoman. Won her first primary by just five votes, vanishingly narrow margin. So it, it's it's uh, hard to know where things will go from here. But if there are more significant uh, penalties that she faces, it could open her up to another primary challenge. Uh, Down the line, we'll see what the electoral ramifications are, if and when we ever get a report from the committee.
1: The Inside Elections podcast is sponsored by George Washington University's Graduate School of Political Management, or GSPM. The GSPM program offers master's degrees in legislative affairs and political management with in-person and online class schedules designed for the working professional. As a graduate of the GSPM program, I appreciated taking courses from people who worked on campaigns or even some of them who ran for office themselves, but I also appreciated some of the core classes. Uh, I remember that at the time I thought it was odd that statistics was a a requirement, uh, but now I'm I'm grateful because I maybe even wish that I'd paid closer attention uh, because of how important knowledge of and use of statistics is the campaigns and covering campaigns uh but the gspm program already they had figured that out that it was important uh before i came to the realization so uh click on the link and check out what the gspm program has to offer
0: the ballot says tom swazi is running to represent siosset levittown douglaston the record says tom represents a place you can't find on a map called common ground let's
2: work together to solve the problems people face.
0: And now that the House has expelled serial fabulist and cameo star George Santos, remember him, uh, the voters of New York's third district have to choose his replacement. They'll do so on February 13th in what will be the first competitive special election in the House of Representatives of this cycle. Uh, Now, Tom Swazi, who held this seat for six years from uh, 2017 to 2023, is the Democratic nominee, and uh, Nassau County legislator Mozzie Pillup is the Republican standard bearer. The two will go head to head in just under six weeks for control of the third district of New York.
1: Now, with special elections, there's often a lot of bluster about uh, and confidence about winning. Everyone says they're going to win, but an indicator. Is TV spending like how much money are the parties actually willing to invest in this? And this is a little bit of a shifting, uh, t- a shifting figure. But what's the latest that we know on on what the TV ad spending is going to look like? So as of
0: today, uh, as of eleven twenty three on Friday, January fifth, I'll timestamp this specifically. Uh, Democrats are significantly more invested in this race financially than Republicans are. Uh, We've seen about $5 million in ad reservations and buys from Democrats. That includes uh, Swazi himself, the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee, and then House Majority PAC, which I believe is actually just going by HMP. They've rebranded, Um, uh, which has booked uh, about $3.7 million in TV ads uh, for this race, comes out to $5 million total. On the Republican side, we've seen just under a $1 million. Uh, and that is split between a uh, independent expenditure from the National Republican Congressional Committee of about $850,000 and a uh, coordinated buy between the NRCC and the Pillup campaign, um, which is about $100,000. So significantly less on the Republican side than on the Democratic side Thus far, the shoe we are waiting to see if it drops is the Congressional Leadership Fund. That's the Republican super PAC that spends a ton of money every year or every two years on House races for Republicans. They have not yet invested in this race. Uh, Given how expensive the New York media market is, they will need to be involved uh, if Mozzie Pillup is is, uh, interested in matching the kind of firepower that Democrats have shown they're going to bring to this contest.
1: Yeah, and where, um, why do we think there's been a little bit more reluctance, at least on the reservations from from on the CLF on the CLF side? Look, I,
0: I think that there are a number of different uh, factors that are going into this race that make it uh, hard to figure out. Um, You know, on on the positive side for Republicans, uh, Long Island, which is where this district is located, it's a northern Nassau County, and then a slice of Queens, uh, has been very good territory for Republicans really over the last four years. Uh, They've had very strong results in local elections in 2021, uh, uh, very strong results in, in the congressional elections in 2022 when they won all four Long Island seats for the first time in decades. And then again, in 2023, just a couple months ago, they they had even uh, stronger results in the local elections there. So the issue environment, the the political environment on Long Island, clearly favoring Republicans at the moment. Uh, they've got a candidate in Mozzie Pillup who has a very interesting backstory uh, as a refugee, as a former IDF soldier. Um, so, so all of that is, is on one side of the ledger. On the other side, however, you've got a couple of things that I, I think go a long way to explaining the hesitance to get involved here. Uh, Tom Swasey is universally known in the district. This is a guy who's held office since the early 90s. His father, his uncle have held office in Nassau County since the 50s and 60s. Everybody knows Tommy. Um, and And... Uh, he's relatively well-liked. You know, He represented this district or a previous version of this district for six years. He was the Nassau County Executive for eight years in the 2000s. He brings a lot to the table in that regard. So uh, I think he starts out in a strong position, uh, and, and Mazzie Pillips starts out very unknown. Uh, and, and then, of course, hanging over all of that, you've got redistricting, right? The New York top court ruled that the redistricting process has to start again in New York before next cycle. That ultimately means that Democrats in the state legislature are, are most likely going to get a chance to redraw the lines in New York, uh, I pr- uh, probably to be uh, more favorable to Democrats. And, and one of the places where we do anticipate there to be somewhat significant changes is on Long Island. Uh, whether or not they go after the third district specifically, I think remains uh, open to, uh, to interpretation. And we won't know that before uh, this special election. But I think the prospect of uh, Republicans going all in to win a district that Democrats will then redraw to be unwinnable for them in November is, is perhaps making some people hesitant to uh, put a, a ton of money down here.
1: Yeah, and, and I should add that uh, this is kind of a preview of the longer story that you'll have in, in next week's issue of Inside Elections. Uh, so people are getting a, a sneak peek at what's gonna be in there. Uh, to me, this is a, a fascinating dynamic or tension between micro and macro, right? Like at a micro level, when you only focus on this race, all the things that you just laid out would lead me to believe that Republicans should just take a walk, like walk away. And, and like, why, why invest the money? Because New York City is, is expensive on its own, but also kind of dual tracking, both raising Pilip's profile and trying to bring down Swazi's image that, so that just doubles, that doubles the cost. But then when you zoom out on a macro level, Republicans can't afford, I can't afford to walk away from a seat when they're their House majority is so narrow on Capitol Hill, right? This member, whoever, you know, on February 13th, the winner, the votes have to get counted and certified is going to be quickly sworn in. If that's a Democrat, then Republicans are down another seat. Now, they're already down a vote with former House Speaker Kevin McCarthy resigning at the end of the year. On January 21st, Ohio Congressman Bill Johnson uh, is leaving Congress in order to take a job at Youngstown, be the president of Youngstown State. Like that means that for any future, uh, near future votes for uh, on Capitol Hill, Republicans may not be able to let anyone miss the vote or uh, uh, or vote against the party line in order to get something passed. So I just and. That means that Swazi in this case would be an incumbent going into going into the next district and make it even more difficult. So I we will see, <laughs> I guess, you know, right. We'll, we'll see what they end up doing, but I have a hard time believing they can't invest big in this race.
0: Yeah, I mean the the vanishingly narrow Republican majority on the hill makes this a, a more complicated proposition. You know, starting on January 21st when Bill Johnson resigns, the house will be 219 Republicans to 213 Democrats. Uh, that means that Republicans can only afford to lose two votes on any issue, assuming full attendance. Uh, If they lose three votes on anything, the House would deadlock 216-216. And of course, uh, under parliamentary procedure, ties do not pass. Uh, You need an actual majority. And so, um, you know, uh, there are a couple of things that I think uh, soften that blow. Um, Democrat Brian Higgins, who is also a New York Democrat, uh, represents the Buffalo area. He's actually leaving Congress sometime in February. He hasn't said specifically when he's headed to the exits, uh, but that will uh, take Democrats down a notch and give Republicans slightly more breathing room. But the other thing that's going on, I think, is that the Speaker Johnson and and the Republican leadership probably doesn't anticipate passing very many things on party line votes moving forward. Uh, You know, we've seen over the last couple of months passing items under suspension uh, on the on the floor, which requires a two thirds majority, has been the go to uh, method for Republicans to pass big ticket items out of the House. Uh, because they can't count on party cohesion, given some of the more renegade members of their own party. They have to rely on democratic votes to get things out the door. So perhaps that's what they're thinking, that uh, they they really don't need party line votes. The, the exception, of course, here is impeachment, right? Republicans seem intent on impeaching Biden over Something I don't know what they're gonna uh, ultimately settle on, but but they've already settled on on impeaching him, it sounds like um and and so uh, that's gonna be uh, if they want that to pass and it would be a major embarrassment if it didn't pass, but if they want that to pass um they're gonna have to bring on board most of the biden district republicans there are 18 of them uh, a number of them like members in new york uh, in districts that voted for biden by very significant margins and 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 they may have to walk the plank because there there just isn't the the cushion for republicans to to allow more than two or three members to vote against a Biden impeachment if and when the time comes.
1: Right. And we'll see you know, that if and when is doing, doing a lot of work, what is Biden standing at the time, right? he's he's been underwater uh, for a couple of years now uh, where his job disapproval rating is higher than his approval rating, but you know, more strong economic numbers uh, coming out this here at the end of this week of uh, You know, his image could be shifting a little bit uh, in terms of how voters view him. And uh, that vote could look differently whenever whenever that comes up. Yeah, we'll see. Stay tuned uh, for for next week's issue uh, for more for more on this race. (laughs) It's hard to believe the Iowa caucuses are a little more than a week away. On Thursday night, Governor Ron DeSantis and Ambassador Nikki Haley had back to back town halls live on CNN, hosted by Caitlin Collins and Aaron Burnett. Here are a couple clips. It sounds like you're saying Republican voters can't trust Donald Trump. Well, what I'm saying is
0: if you've run before, promised things, didn't deliver, and then you're running on the same things, uh, wouldn't it be reasonable to say, well, gee, I don't know that I can take that to the bank going forward. So, yes, I think the fact that he's campaigning on something, uh, that does not mean that he would actually follow through on it. I personally think President
2: Trump was the right president at the right time. I agree with a lot of his policies. But the reality is, rightly or wrongly, chaos follows him. And we all know that's true. Chaos follows him. And we can't have a country in disarray and a world on fire and go through four more years of chaos. We won't survive it.
1: Here to chat about the latest in Iowa is Washington Post national political reporter Marianne Levine, who is joining us from Des Moines. Marianne, welcome.
2: Thanks for having me.
1: Now, before we get started, you've got to answer our first question, which is what congressional district did you grow up in?
2: Um, I grew up in California's 15th congressional district.
1: And rem- and remind everyone that for our casual listeners uh, where that where that is.
2: So that's uh, in Redwood City, uh, Redwood City, California, Bay Area. Jackie Spear was uh, my representative for many years.
1: And I I have a few friends that grew up on the peninsula now isn't redwood city aren't they the ones that brag about the weather like uh, yeah. climate best by government tests yeah or yeah
2: that's um i'm surprised that you've heard about that but i there's a sign in um downtown redwood city that has that slogan but i was always really skeptical about it was never really <laughs> quite sure who the who had conducted the test um but that is apparently a city slogan um and i'm impressed it's made its way all the way to this podcast
1: <laughs> well, there's a lot of things that are mentioned on this podcast that don't get mentioned elsewhere. Um, well, well, thank you for joining us. Uh, the weather is probably a little different in, there in Des Moines than it is in Redwood City. Um, now, let's let's start. Let's let's dive right in. Um, according to the 538 polling average in Iowa, former President Donald Trump is at 50 percent and more than 30 points ahead of DeSantis and Nikki Haley are you hearing and seeing anything on the ground that would lead us to believe that the polls are way off and we're gonna have a surprise ending on the 15th?
2: From talking to voters out here and also just talking to Iowa operatives, people who have followed Iowa politics or Iowa vote, the Iowa caucuses for a long time, it does not feel like we're going to see a huge surprise on election night. Uh, It does feel right now, at least, and who knows, I mean, the final results are always um, the election night, but it does feel like Trump is poised to have a pretty sizable win in Iowa and ahead of the New Hampshire primaries. So, right now on the ground, you see like The crowds for his events are pretty big he's attracting a lot of people who are first-time caucus goers and so i think his main goal and his campaign's main goal is to turn people out i think the more interesting question coming out of iowa is not necessarily who wins the caucus but who comes in second and by how much i think that is probably the question that all of us are going to be looking at as we head towards new hampshire
1: and uh, last night you were at a campaign event uh, hosted by Eric Trump, I believe, in in Ankeny. Um, how, before we talk about DeSantis and Nikki Haley, how has voter sentiment about Trump changed? Uh, maybe since you've been starting, you know, starting these expeditions to Iowa compared to now, or, or has it changed at, at all? It
2: feels like Trump has really had core Republican primary voters for a while now out in Iowa. I mean, I was out here when I first started um, covering the primary last year. I remember meeting with um, an Iowa official and they kind of mentioned, you know, this place is still Trump country. And I think that's something that we've definitely seen. I think his support out here definitely solidified, um, especially with the indictments. I think that's something that we definitely saw in interviews with voters. Um, I mean, it was interesting because at um, the start of last year, I was covering Mike Pence and Tim Scott and uh, very different candidates, very different messages from Trump. And um, the voters there were, were interesting because you would, you would go to a lot of these events and some of them would just say, oh, I haven't made up my mind. I'm still shopping around. And I think that's a big part of the culture out here in Iowa is a lot of voters like to see the different different candidates, but I remember at the state fair at different events, a lot of them said, you know, I'm still probably going to vote for Trump or I'm leaning towards Trump, but I'm checking out all these other candidates. So in talking to voters um, at some of these Trump events, some of them will say, yes, I was open to thinking about someone else. But then they'll say, actually, Trump was my first choice the entire time. So I think openness to to voting for someone is one way. Of, um, of phrasing how you're going to approach this, but I also think that a lot of voters, um, for quite a few months now, have been pretty sold on voting for Trump.
1: Yeah, and and Jacob, I'll have you. I want to have you jump in, uh, but uh, that event last night, it was funny because, um, well, DeSantis during the town hall was talking about all the time he has spent in Iowa, visiting all 99 counties, mm-hmm. doing the full grassing stuff. And last night, Trump literally phoned it in, right? Yes. Eric called, got his dad on the phone and just held it up to the microphone. How did that go over in the crowd?
2: I mean, the crowd loved it. Everyone was cheering. Um he, Eric Trump said something about how, um, how and he was trying to use it as a message that his dad is always there for him and always there for the family. And it's hard to know, you know if this call was planned or not. But, um, but he um, said that his dad was having dinner at Mar-a-Lago and decided to call him up. And Trump basically reiterated what he says at all of his rallies, which is that he got subsidies for farmers, that he loves Iowa, that he'll likely be in Des Moines on caucus day. And, um, and it was a brief, probably two minute, um, two minute phone call, but it definitely got the crowd excited. And a lot of people started cheering Trump name so i think it it was i think it was a pretty effective um campaign strategy here however we want to describe it
1: well it's hilarious that he used mar-a-lago getting a reservation at mar-a-lago like that was hard for him to get and he couldn't give it up in order to come but anyway (laughs) jacob what what else are you what else are you yeah so
0: so we've heard a lot right about nikki haley's uh movement in New Hampshire, where she's clearly polling second now. She's got some strength there. There was a poll out the other day that showed her within four points of Trump there. Uh, But at the same time, it seems to be the most interesting thing that could happen in Iowa is if she comes in second after trailing DeSantis for second place for for the duration of the campaign, um, but at the same time, you know, she she dissed Iowa the other day. She you know said Iowa starts it, but New Hampshire corrects it. Um, she you know what is what is your sense of kind of the state of Nikki Haley's campaign in Iowa? Is it possible that she could indeed come in second and try and take some momentum into New Hampshire? Uh, what's going on with, with Haley? Yeah, Iowa.
2: I think it's it's possible that it's going to be very close between her and DeSantis. I mean, that's something that we're seeing in the polling. DeSantis has support, obviously, from these key figures in the Iowa establishment, like Governor Kim Reynolds, Bob Vander Plaats, He's an evangelical leader out here who um, prides himself on endorsing the winner of the past uh, three Iowa caucuses. Um, but it is, I think she does have momentum. She. I was talking to some people out in the state, and they kind of, have indicated that her crowds have gotten bigger here. And she now does have this pretty big um, operation, organizing operation that she didn't quite have at the start of her campaign out in Iowa with the Americans for Prosperity um, action endorsement. And so I think that that's something that has helped her. DeSantis, of course, has prided prided himself a lot on um, his ground game. Like they've invested really heavily here. So I think there's a question of whether if the AFP ground game will catch up to DeSantis or, and it seems like they're a pretty organized operation out here. So um, that's one, one thing that we're definitely looking for. And then a sec- and then I think one thing we'll be observing the next few weeks is just, is the momentum that we're seeing in New Hampshire translating to Iowa? And it's, it seems like it is at least to some extent from talking to operatives out here, but I think we'll know more in the next, um, in the next week or so.
0: And who, I guess, who is Nikki Haley drawing new support from? Because clearly she's moved in the polls here in Iowa. Who is showing up to Nikki Haley events? You know, we know the voters Trump has targeted. We know the voters DeSantis has targeted. You mentioned evangelical voters, the Vander Plaats endorsement. endorsement. Who, who is coming around to Nikki Haley in Iowa as, as their candidate? Of yeah, the it
2: feels like anecdotally, a lot of the people who are going to Haley events are either people who want the party to move on from Trump, who are concerned about general election, electability on Trump's end who um, also voters who like her foreign policy experience that's something that we hear when we talk to voters and I think they like the way she presents herself
1: and there are there are four Republican House members uh, representing Iowa two Republican senators. Uh, what do do you see them at all when you're at, at events? What what visibility do they have or what impact are they having on this race?
2: So I have not seen a lot of Republican members um, campaigning in Iowa with the candidates. I know Joni Ernst had a Roast and Ride event last year where she hosted all the candidates who um, came to Iowa. And and so that was kind of her forum to talk to people. Randy Feenstra, I know, has his event too or had his event pretty recently. But uh, what we're you seeing with a lot of the members is that, um, of the congressional delegation, is that they really do try to stay out of the, um, out of endorsements. I mean, I think at one point we were expecting Beanstrand to endorse someone in the race, but for the most part, the tradition has been to stay out of the race and to essentially stay neutral, which obviously, Kim Reynolds departed from that this year. But among the congressional delegation, uh, we've seen this desire to um, to stay neutral, in part because you want they want people to keep coming to the state, they want to welcome as many people as possible. And um, so we have not seen them a ton on the trail. I, I mean, I saw Joni Ernst at the Iowa State Fair, we saw um, some of the other congressional members at the Iowa State Fair, and they were walking around kind of playing this level, this this role of ambassador to the different presidential candidates, but we're not seeing them actively advocating for for for
0: them. Several senior staffers have left or been fired. Their chief strategist uh, left a couple weeks ago. Has that impacted their ability to run a serious ground operation in Iowa where it's so crucial? that they helped the DeSantis campaign have a good yeah, showing. Yeah, it seems like
2: they're kind of proceeding as planned right now. I mean, I think a lot of the infrastructure that they had planned for um, for the Iowa caucuses is still in place. I think you're still seeing them hosting events. So, I mean, I think it's hard to tell until the election day results come in about who actually has a good ground game, because it, one um, Iowa operative I was talking to said something along the lines of, well, someone always it's always the winning team that has the good ground game. Anyone else? Uh, I know and no one talks about what a great ga- ground game you had if you lose, and so I think that you know anecdotally, I think people I've talked to in the state have had their door knocked by never back down. They've also had their door knocked by AFP. Um, but I think we're not really quite going to know what their what the results of their organizing strategy are going to be until um, we get close, well, until we get to caucus day and see how well um, DeSantis actually does.
1: And describe for our listeners what it's like to be there. Meaning, there are a ton of reporters, right? And you're going to multiple events. Is it the? Do you also see the same voters? I mean, like you know, even voters on a first name basis or describe what that dynamic is like
2: yeah I mean among the press corps there's definitely a dynamic of almost feeling like you're in college in some ways because everyone is traveling around we're all staying in similar hotels uh, my colleague is in the room down the hall from me so it's, it's sort of you're kind of in this um, fun dynamic where you're making a lot of friends on the road and you're um, going to all the events And I think um, it's fun to um, have other reporters from other outlets covering the same candidate because you're even though you're Technically, competitors—you're all going through the same thing. You're all schlepping out to Mason City or doing these long drives um, throughout the state. So that there is like a nice camaraderie among the press corps. In terms of voters, I think that there are some Trump voters who do go to multiple events across the state. I spoke to a Trump voter in Waterloo two months ago, and then I saw her again at a different event in Waterloo. So um, there are there are voters who are repeat um, Trump. Rally attendees, I think that, um, and I think one thing that's always striking too, in going to some of his events is that you meet people from out of state who've driven hours from Minnesota to go see him. So you do see some repeat, um, you do see some repeat attendees of Trump rallies, or some operatives who are kind of going to um, to to every single Trump event. But a lot of that, most people, I would say, I've not seen before. But um, but there are some who, if you're going back to a city, they'll be going to the Trump event again. Because they like seeing him.
1: And where you know this is the the,
0: this is the first year that the Democrats aren't holding the their Iowa caucus at the same time as the Republicans since you know the Iowa caucus began being the unofficial or official kickoff of of the primary season. Uh, To the extent that you're talking or, or seeing any Democrats in the state. Is there a sense of disappointment or frustration, or even remorse for how the caucuses went down last time that that caused the DNC to to pull the first in the nation status away? And and you know, are voters feeling left out that all the attention is on the Republican side? And I don't even know when when the Iowa caucus for the Democrats is going to take place later. Yeah, this year? I mean,
2: I think that it's it's tough. I mean, I have not talked to a lot of Democratic voters because I'm mainly covering Republicans, so I have not spoken to a lot of Democratic voters about that. Talk topic, but I think there's just a broader sense of dismay among Democrats in Iowa, just about the state of the party and just the decline in power that they've had over the last decade or so. I mean, Iowa used to be pretty competitive for Democrats, it used to be a pretty purple state, and um, it's now definitely veered uh, much more red in the last few years. And so I think it almost feels like the, uh, the the DNC deciding not to or the Democratic Party deciding not to have um, the Iowa caucuses first or, and essentially taking that away from them sort of feels like the cherry on top to kind of a long um, sort of a dismaying few years for Iowa Democrats um, just with um, with recent congressional elections, gubernatorial elections. And it just feels like kind of this broader trend that we've seen of Democrats not having as much power as they used to in the state.
1: Yeah, we're not that far away from Democratic Senator Tom Harkin you know, yeah. trying, to play, uh, trying to play a kingmaker role on the on the Democratic side. Uh, where will you be on caucus night?
2: I will be with Trump and we're expecting him to be in the Des Moines area, probably having some event in Des Moines. So I will be with um, Trump on caucus night.
1: All right. Well, we will all be watching. Uh, we appreciate you being on. But we also uh, we want you to stay on for our last segment, uh, if if that's all right.
2: Sounds great.
0: And finally, our last segment, Look What I Found, where we highlight something new we've stumbled across. It could be political, sports, music, or something else entirely. You never know what you're going to find. So I found today, and by found I mean I read in a press release, (laughs) that uh, California Senate candidate Adam Schiff not only raised $5.9 million this past three months for his campaign, but he actually... Uh, made his campaign made $372,000 in interest on investments that uh, his campaign has. It is rare that campaigns are able to do this, but it is legal, if you have cash that you're not using to put it into typically treasuries and make interest money off of it. Adam Schiff is sitting on about $35 million in campaign funds at the moment. And so he's been able, it's insane, it it is presidential level money. Um, He's been able to uh, make more truthfully than than most congressional candidates are able to raise overall um, I, off of just interest. I actually went back and pulled the numbers. Uh, there were 630 candidates who filed campaign finance reports in the second quarter of 2023 who are running for Congress, just 122 of them raised more overall than $372,000. So Adam Schiff on interest alone is raising more money than uh, almost every single person running for Congress
1: this cycle—it's by just not incredible. doing anything. He's re- he's he's raising money just on. on back. I know he's working hard. I don't want to get any emails from the yeah. from the and, and Mike, Mike Pence probably would have killed for that money uh, for a fraction in, in his of his presidential it. race. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Uh, on a different note, um, I found a movie that I actually liked, uh, right before Christmas, I took the kids, uh, to see Wonka. Um, I wasn't really looking for a Willy Wonka origin film, uh, but it was actually pretty good. Um, it was, it was solid. It was clever. Uh, it was funny. It wasn't quite as creepy as the, you know, the original Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, uh, the two iterations, uh, But it it was great. Uh, The 4DX, I don't know if you've heard, there's this 4DX experience where it's kind of interactive. It kind of feels like, though, I I thought that was underwhelming. It felt like watching a movie on a very mild roller coaster, like the seats move. And if you're prone to motion sickness, I would not recommend that experience. But in general, I will uh, will endorse my full and total endorsement for Wonka, (laughs) Wonka the movie.
0: Do they give you like a little piece of chocolate as well? to to go along with that's a
1: missed opportunity on the branding they did not Uh, you could pay for you know overpriced candy at the snack bar just like everybody else that was still an option though i feel
2: like the johnny depp version that came out a few years ago was also was kind of creepy so i was not super motivated to see the latest wonka movie but maybe i'll reconsider
1: yeah, it's very, and I I'm more familiar with the the original. With I found out my kids didn't even know exist They thought oh, no. that the Johnny Depp one was the original. I'm like, oh no, I'm like, oh, that's oh, no. Dark.
2: <laughs> <laughs> this
1: is not it. But it's just a. Very different. It's kind of a musical, but the songs are are not long. Like I don't know, maybe just musicals aren't my thing. Sometimes, like, oh my, we have to listen to a whole song, but they're just <laughs> it's brief. Um, <laughs> it's good. I you know I didn't. I am old enough now where I fall asleep during a lot of movies, and I did not fall asleep at, at all during this one.
2: That's a ringing endorsement.
0: You know you, exactly. You're you're not the first person to that I've heard say that they were pleasantly surprised with how the movie turned out. Um, uh, so there, there might be something to that, even if the trailer was pretty ridiculous.
1: <laughs> well, the, yeah, the movie, <laughs> there's, there's a lot of logic and reality that is suspended, but it, it's in the, in a time where things can be very dark, uh, a lot of heavy topics. Uh, it's kind of a palate cleanser.
2: That sounds great.
0: Marianne, what did you find?
2: Um, over the holiday, I watched The Holdovers, which is um, this movie um, about a school teacher who's at this very depressing-looking Northeastern boarding school, and he has to um, basically watch the kids who are staying there for the holidays because their families are gone or their parents don't want them to come home, and it was a surprisingly um, heartwarming movie, and I feel like a lot of the movies over the last year that have gotten kind of the Oscar buzz have been very depressing. And so um, this movie, I felt, was was good. And it um, had a curmudgeon to softy arc that I always really like. Um, So um, that was my discovery over the holidays. Um, Highly recommend.
1: Is this a musical, too? I have...
2: No, it's not a musical. It's not a musical. <laughs> so that I realized the way I described it, maybe it could no, maybe commercial
0: I don't know if Paul Giamatti's ever been in a musical. That would be pretty funny. Yeah,
2: that would be pretty funny. But um but yeah, it was good. It was heartwarming unlike like past lives or killers of the flower moon or any of the other um depressing movies that are probably gonna get Oscar awards this year.
0: I, the holdovers was my vote for my family's Christmas movie, uh, but I was outvoted. Uh, and by that, I mean, my mom didn't want to see it, and she has uh, a thousand more votes than I do. <laughs> so we saw The Boys in the Boat instead. Oh, how was that? Was, uh, it was fine. Okay. It You know, it's, it's, it's the thing is, the story is too good to be true, and it is true. And so you're kind of sitting there being like, I know exactly how this is going to end oh, okay. because. It's like everything that could go right possibly does. There's really very little like stakes ultimately, but you know the the scenes of the actual regattas were very well done. And when you put a real uplifting, you know, good old American story set to you know the swelling music and you know beating the Nazis, it it you know it uh, it has a good
1: effect. But it wasn't anything. stellar. Oh, that's I wanted. I I do. Maybe at some point <laughs> we'll get to, I'll get to see it, but now it's a little different. I, it was an odd promo cross promotional thing with the boys on the boat, the movie and orange theory. I don't know. That was kind of a clunky, oh. but Hey, we, we did it, I guess. <laughs> so I
2: guess there's like a workout theme. Yeah, I don't we're know, rowing I
1: don't know. on a Sports. rower, not quite against the Nazis, depending on the person next to you, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> um, anyway, well, uh, Thank you. Thank you again, Marianne, for joining us. We really appreciate it. We'll see you on the other side of the caucuses.
2: Yeah, hopefully. Thanks for having me.
0: And that's all the time we have. We discussed the upcoming special election in New York's third congressional district to replace George Santos and the latest in the Iowa caucuses on the Republican side with Washington Post reporter Marianne Levine. Thank you for joining us. At Inside Elections, we provide nonpartisan analysis of congressional, presidential, and gubernatorial races. With a combination of reporting and data, we break down the key races and bring valuable context to complex elections. Go to insideelections.com to subscribe to the bi-weekly newsletter. We've got individual subscriptions and group packages that are tailored for association and corporate packs. If you liked this episode, please subscribe to the podcast and rate us on your favorite platform. If you're watching on YouTube, hit the thumbs up button and leave a comment. If you don't like today's episode, please email Hugh Grant. We also want to thank our producers, Alan Tuzinski and Melissa Leonard of Pretty Easy Podcasts and associate producer, Conrad Tolosa. Please come back and join us next time.